this time for the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. Now listen carefully because I'm about to perform an action that is of great significance for humanity. Yes, that's right. I'm going to do something that is really significant and I'll go further. I'll say it is profound not just for humanity, but for life, Earth and the entire universe. Here it comes. Are you ready? That's right, that was me dropping a water bottle onto the desk here of the station. Uh, haven't done any damage of 2XX. And you are listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Now we are going to explain that one a little later, but stick around because the answer is actually really interesting. Now our special guest today is Charlie Lineweaver, coordinator of ANU, Planetary Science Institute, associate professor of the Research School of Astronomy and Astrophysics. Research School of Earth Sciences at the ANU and currently working on a book with Professor Paul Davies, whose name will be known to many of our Fuzzy Logic listeners. Welcome to Fuzzy Logic, Charlie. Well, thank you, Fuzzy Rod. <laughs> Fuzzy Rod. Now, it's a, a matter of quick administrative thing, Charlie. Uh, it's station protocol that I guess always obey the laws of physics. Mm, I try to at all times. <laughs> That's right. Obey gravity. It's the law. Now, before we get into the matter of deeper matters of me dropping water bottles onto the station console here, uh, you and I were both at a lecture not long ago with Dick Smith talking about population. And I'm wondering what your take is on that. Are you as concerned about human population growth as Dick Smith? I am, but I think not from as quite as nationalistic a point of view. I think that uh, it's easy for us in rich countries to be paranoid about uh, population because we want to maintain our privileges and we look around us and see overpopulated, polluted places that are very poor and we want to, of course, maintain our privileges. And that makes me feel guilty every time I hear somebody say, oh, there are too many people in the world because a lot of that statement or possibly half of it or some fraction of it is motivated by the desire to maintain our privileges. So it's a very self-centered way of looking at it. it no, it's not necessarily self-centered. I, I think it's also a global issue. Get a, If you forget the your self-centeredness and forget your privileges even for people who are not privileged the, the, pop, the world is getting overpopulated and things are getting harder to do now do you think it's an almost inevitable consequence of having uh, a life form such as us that we will Malthusian like exploit the resources of the planet until we are starting to run short no I, I don't think it's inevitable uh, life has been on this planet for about four billion years and for the most part uh, life forms behave uh, sustainably for example when the log falls down there are mushrooms and fungi that start eating the log and then when the log is gone they, they their numbers go down and then the next log falls and then their numbers go up again and so the fungi eat at the same rate that the logs are falling down and our problem now is that we are burning fossil fuels faster than the uh, fossil fuels are being deposited in the earth by the sunshine and by plants and fossil by plants and uh, trees that are falling into swamps and not rotting and then turning into coal and so that's happening at a natural at a natural rate and the rate at which we're digging them up is much faster than the rate in which they're being buried so it's unsustainable and that's really the problem we need to slow down so that the our ability to extract resources is equivalent to the sun's ability to produce them on the earth. Now, do you find, as a practicing scientist, do you find the political debate in these sorts of things frustrating? 
Yeah, science is not politics. Uh, you know, science is sometimes. Uh, I mean, we scientists like to use the, the experiments as the arbiter of what's true or not. Not who believe how many people believe this versus how many people believe that. It's hard to get away from democracy and science, but we try as hard as we can. Yeah, so it's a, a rigorous sort of process. The politicians don't play by the same rules. No, no, politicians play by votes. Their their name, their ideas is to get as many votes as possible and not to get at the truth. Do you, do you think it's the role of uh, of scientists in general to get politically active when we have an issue of this kind of significance to us? A little bit. I mean, scientists are, uh, first of all, a lot of science funding comes from politicians, and so we have to uh, play politics to some degree. Um, the other issue is... Uh, and, and a lot of science, big science, depends on money. Um, so we have to get some money to do it. All right, now let's go back to my water bottle dropping experiment. Not really an experiment, but a, an action here. Uh, I'll just do it again for those who might have missed it. Here it comes. That's me dropping a water bottle onto the uh, desk here in the studio of 2XX. And uh, Charlie, why is that a significant thing to do? Well, um, I did my PhD in the cosmic microwave background radiation, and this is the old, these are the oldest photons that you can see in the universe. And um, let's, let's just forget that for a while, but let's think of when you look out at a star, you see a bright spot in the sky, right? Now that star wasn't always there. It uh, collapsed from a molecular cloud. And stars are part of galaxies, and galaxies collapsed, collapsed from even larger uh, more homogeneously distributed matter. The point is, is if you go further and further and further back towards the Big Bang, the matter is not distributed in clumps, but it gets less and less clumpy. It gets more and more homogeneously distributed. And the closer you get to the Big Bang, the more homogeneously distributed the matter is. So instead of having empty space, empty space, star, empty space, empty space, star, or void, void, galaxy, void, void, galaxy, you end up with a little bit of matter, 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 a little bit of matter. So it's everywhere pretty homogeneous. Um, and the level of homogeneity is incredible. It's a little like, uh, imagine a bunch of people with $30,000. You have $30,000, I have $30,000. That person has $30,000 and one. That person has $30,000 minus one. That's how even the matter was distributed in the early universe at the time of the cosmic microwave background radiation. That's about 400,000 years after the Big Bang. So, in other words, the universe used to not have clumps in it. It was unclumped. And here's, here's the interesting part about that. We talk about equilibrium, and the universe used to be in equilibrium, or it looked like it. It had the same temperature. There were no chemical gradients. There was no difference between Rod and Charlie, or a microphone in the air, or between the Earth and the, and the atmosphere. All of these things were sm completely smoothed out. Things were unclumped. And uh, so same temperature, no chemical gradients, nothing to, there were no hurricanes, no, no structure of any kind. And, uh, and yet now we know that there are these structures. And so the question is, how did these structures get here? If something is at equilibrium, the second law of thermodynamics says it should stay at equilibrium. Nothing should change. There's nothing to make things happen. But there's one feature that we've missed and that is related to the water bottle that you dropped on the table, and that is gravity. When we have matter that is unclumped and evenly distributed, that's essentially saying, 
Woohoo! There's lots of free energy around. Why? Because all of that stuff can clump. There's a tiny, tiny little bit of uh, extra matter over here. It starts to attract the matter around it. It starts to clump into galaxies and stars and planets and is therefore responsible for all the structures that we see around us today. So something caused this very uniform early universe to form clumps and then into stars, galaxies, planets. That's right. And us. That's right. And so when I said this was of significance to humanity, mm-hmm. uh, we're actually riding this gradient, as you call it, or the dis- different differential. Can you explain that? So wh- what does it mean? Well, I, wouldn't, I would not say it's uh, significant to humanity in any sense that humanity is different from other life forms. Uh, I would say it's uh, significant for life, but I don't like to talk about humanity alone because that gets into politics. Uh. <laughs> I like to avoid politics. But the, but the yes. bottom line is that the yes. matter used to be evenly distributed, and there were tiny, tiny irregularities. Um, and we saw those irregularities in the maps we made of the cosmic microwave background because when it was a little bit denser, we saw cool spots there. And was a little bit uh, less dense, we saw hot spots there. And that, so we were able to measure the degree of inhomogeneity, how many tiny, tiny seeds there were. And then over the past 13.7 billion years, the slight, slight, slight overdensities collapsed into large scale structure, galaxies, stars, Earths, oceans, you know, all, the, all of the differences that we see around us today were produced by gravity because there was no other things that could have produced them. Everything was in equilibrium. When you're in equilibrium, you stay in equilibrium. Right. Well, a- as a life form, I feel you know entitled to uh, claim some uh, position here. Uh, you know, I feel sorry for you. <laughs> I'm sorry that you feel that way. <laughs> you feel more privileged than the rocks no, no, around you. Well, I don't feel privileged, but I, I feel that I have a special interest in it. Put that way, because mm. because this gravitational collapse has led to the formation of life, and ultimately to me and to things like the fuzzy logic science show and the star and the, and the star that gives us the light that without which you wouldn't be here and the galaxy without which the star wouldn't be here right so there's a connection here in the sense that life is powered by the gravitational collapse is that right well indirectly what life is powered by mostly on this planet is the sunlight now sunlight is a result of again the big bang you notice that we talk we talk about the hot big bang and the center of the sun is hot, and we know that at the center of the sun, hydrogen is being fused into helium. And then later on, helium will be fused into carbon, oxygen, and a bunch of other things. And we could ask the question, well, if the Big Bang was hot, why didn't the Big Bang produce helium, blah, blah, and carbon, oxygen, and why didn't it complete that and produce all iron? Now, you can imagine that if the Big Bang did make just iron, then there would be no stars shining and there would be no life on this planet. And so the Big Bang, Big Bang is equally responsible for not burning all the original hydrogen into helium and then subsequently into iron. That's another way in which we can thank the Big Bang for the free energy that uh, we are now using. Now, I'm saying that because right now, the sun is powering life on Earth. That power is coming from hydrogen being fused into helium. But the only reason that the sun is able to turn hydrogen into helium is because of gravity. Gravity gave hmm. that sun the act, the heat and the density in order to fuse hydrogen into helium. So again, the collapse of that matter is what enabled us to have access to the nuclear potential energy of hydrogen. 
Okay, now many of the fuzzy listeners will be familiar or at least know of the name Professor Paul Davies and you're working with him at the moment. Now I understand that now he's a Templeton Prize winner and that's the connection of philosophy and science. The big question is... No, it's more like religion and science. Religion Templeton and science. Is somebody who, uh, Templeton was a, John Templeton was a guy who got a lot of money on the stock market and thought, well, what am I going to do with all my money? I'm, I, can, I have so much money I can buy whatever I want. And he was very interested in the relationship between religion and science. He thought that if he was a religious person and therefore he thought that if science is our best way of getting at the truth, then science will, should be able to eventually show us the truth of religion. Now, as I understand Paul's thesis, it's that it's looking at the question of whether the universe has been configured, because you mentioned that, uh, you, you said, why did not iron get, and the, higher, uh, the, the, the heavier elements get created in the Big Bang? Because we need them to be created in the sun so that we can have life evolve out of it. Does, is it that the universe is configured, that all of these things were inevitable in some way? Well, Paul occasionally says the the universe is a setup job. He thinks that there were that there are features about our universe which are uniquely tuned or fine tuned to produce life. Mm. And I disagree with that completely, but he seems to think that a lot of, a lot of good scientists think that and we, it's one of the things that we uh, are debating. Uh, how, how might we use science to give evidence either way? Well, that's a difficult question, and that's why it's uh, debating. I mean, usually scientists don't like to debate. They like to say, okay, here's an experiment we can do to see who's right. But when, they, when you don't have an experiment to do, you debate and say, <laughs> and then hopefully out of that debate somewhere will come an experiment that can uh, show who's right or who's wrong or how everybody's wrong and that we forgot about this possibility, and that looks like a more correct version. Okay, well, one example I think I've heard him say is that you're looking to see how finely tuned the various forces of nature or the various fundamentals of nature are. So if the electroweak force was plus or minus a little bit, um, how, how well tuned is that to give us the result that we see in the interesting universe we have today? That's what they say, that's right. Right. Do you, do you have any sympathy for the ideas of, uh, are you familiar with the philosophers? But I know we're talking philosophy here and religion, not, not science. Um, Spinoza has this idea that, that God is the universe and the universe is God. They are, the, the, they are one and the same thing. Does that kind of idea, I mean, he, he's removing the need to have an external creator. Does that idea appeal to you? It appealed to Einstein. I think Einstein, when he talked about his own religious values, uh, he would say he, of any of these philosophers slash religious people, that Spinoza's ideas were more like his. I, uh, they don't appeal to me quite as much, no. So the, the universe is fundamentally a meaningless place? I didn't know. Don't, you're putting words in my mouth, Rod. Please don't do it. So please, so please, <laughs> please uh, <laughs> interject with, your, with what you really think. Well... <laughs> Meaning is a, is a tough one. I mean, I find meaning, for, for example, I got up this morning and my hunger, my, I was hungry, and so that gave me eating breakfast, that gave meaning to eating breakfast. And uh, I think we are all packed full of emotions with which we use to create our own meaning in our lives. Uh, okay, so I, I would, but I, get, I shouldn't say that because we are not creating that. Those have been 
selected for in our past history for, I mean, for example, where did morality come from? You know, hey, it's you should love your children and you don't have to love strangers' children and you should kill your enemies. These are things that uh, humans have a part of their moral belief system. And where did that come from? And then you can wave your hands and say, well, that's easy to understand because if, if, if we are products of genes and we're to keep our own genes alive, that's what you would do. You would favor your own genes and then... Uh, I guess fight battles to protect them against the competition. Uh, I think you can explain human morality in many ways by evolution. So it's a useful thing for us for a functioning society. Right? For us, for our genes. For our genes. Yes. Ah, so it's our genes that evolved. Well, I, I was heavily influenced by Richard Dawkins' *The Selfish Gene*. Yes. I can recommend it. Uh, I don't think it's completely true, but it has made a significant inroads into the, some of the ways I think. Ah, okay. Now we're in. We're going to play a little bit of music just for you, Charlie. I'm not sure whether you're a fan of Jimi Hendrix, but um, this is a bit of God Bless America for us. When we come back, we're going to have a little talk about some ideas that you've been working with Paul Davies on on ways of thinking about cancer. Uh, our guest today here on Fuzzy Logic, Dr. Charlie Lineweaver, astrobiologist, cosmologist, and big thinker on lots of topics. So. Check this out. This is uh, maybe not something you'd play to your mum and dad, but it's pretty funky. <laughs> Go Jimmy. Go Jimmy. Here he comes. <laughs> Please do not adjust your set. Please don't go away because we've got a fascinating guest on Fuzzy Logic here today, Dr. Charlie Lydon-Weaver, cosmologist, astrobiologist. And, oh uh, yeah, that's some music to really annoy your mother. Now, I heard Charlie, uh, not Charlie, I heard uh, Jimi Hendrix being interviewed after that, uh, after he did that at Woodstock, and they said, oh, a lot of Americans really didn't like what he did to it. But uh, it's pretty fun, isn't it, hey, Charlie? It is. It is, especially at the time. <laughs> and uh, Iconoclast is, is what you like as well. So now I've recorded, I scripted a little promo for you there. Uh, do you want to tell us about yourself, Charlie? Hi, I'm Dr. Charlie Lineweaver, astrobiologist and cosmologist. Did you know that your listening to the radio is contributing to the eventual heat death of the universe? But it's worthwhile just the same when you tune into the Fuzzy Logic Science Show on Community Radio 2XX. Oh, brilliant. Thank you very much. And uh, regular listeners to Fuzzy will hear that one coming up in the future. Uh, I think we actually, before we go on to the cancer topic, we might just dig back into that uh, a little bit there. So uh, possibly a slightly flippant sounding statement there, but contributing to the heat death of the universe. That is correct, is it not? Yes, yes, I think it is. Uh, and, um, well, that's essentially what the second law of thermodynamics tells us. Now, the, the first law of thermodynamics is 
it's much more intuitive. It says that energy is conserved. There are different forms of energy, and for example, right now I have some chemical energy inside of my my muscles, and then that's making this larynx vibrate, and the vibe sound is produced, and then the vibrations are spreading out through the room, and then they are increasing the mole- the kinetic energy of all the uh, molecules around me, and so that the energy is conserved. It's diluted, but it's conserved. The second law is about the dilution, and that is that entropy will always increase. And that is the universe and everything in it is coming closer and closer and closer to equilibrium. And uh, so, for example, when you drop that bottle, the equilibrium state is further closer to the center of the Earth. And so it falls down. And then what happens to the kinetic energy? Boom, it creates some sound. It vibrates and spread out, spreads out. That spread out energy will never come back into that bottle and make it pop up again. And that's the second law. And that's what gives, that's the only thing, it's the only law in physics, which is time, reverse, time irreversible. It gives a sense to time. All the other laws of physics, you replace time, t, with minus time, minus t, and it makes perfect sense. But only in the second law of thermodynamics do you get a sense of the, do you get the idea that time has a direction. And that direction is towards the heat death of the universe when everything will be in equilibrium. There will be no star shining, no Rod or Charlie, no Earth, no anything. Everything will be just in photons, and there will be no structure, and essentially it's death. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just struggling in that concept of no rod. I, I know that statistics show that people die, but um, that's just statistics. That's called fuzzy logic, right? <laughs> uh, but, I, but I can't undrop the bottle. Well, I could make the bottle rise again, but I could never recover that energy. So it's gone, it's dissipated the energy. Where, where did it go? Spread out. It's just, it's just gone. It's spread out. Spread out. It's not gone at all. It Energy is conserved. The first law, it's conserved. It hasn't been gone anywhere. It's just spread out. Oh, okay. It's like a billiard ball. Do you play snooker or something? Yeah, you br- yeah. Okay, you have yeah, one yeah. ball. The white ball has all the kinetic energy, and then boom, it hits the 10 other balls, and then boom, all the that one ball with all the kinetic energy, that kinetic energy gets spread out among the 10 other balls. And then when those 10 other balls roll around the table, hit the sides, then there's a little bit of friction. And then that kinetic energy gets distributed among all the molecules on the table. And so that gets spread out. It doesn't disappear. It just spreads out. And that's what's happening to every single type of energy in the universe. Ah, uh, so it, it becomes unusable, inverted commas. That's right, that's right. Right. Um, now, let's, let's talk about, uh, about cancer, because the, the classic model of cancer is the rogue gene, the, the gene when good genes go bad, when good cells go bad. Now, you and Paul Davies have been thinking about what cancer really is. What have you been doing there? Well, let, let me give you a little bit of background about why two... Uh, physicists and cosmologists are involved in cancer. And that is, uh, first of all, there was a stimulus package in the U.S. and other places around the world about a few years ago. And one of the things that government is trying to do is to get rid of cancer. There's been a war on cancer for I'm Mm. not sure how many decades. Mm. But apparently the outcomes from cancer haven't improved very much. In other words, billions of dollars are being spent to try to improve cancer outcomes, and they haven't made much progress. 
So the war on cancer has, is essentially not making progress. And so they said, well, let's have a stimulus package. You guys, you oncologists, you people who study cancer, maybe you're approaching these things in the wrong way. Maybe we need some lateral thinking. What can we do? Huh, why don't we ask some physicists? They know about you know numbers, and you guys are increasingly getting into numbers about all your microarrays of genetic uh, analyses. So why don't some physicists help you? And then they talked to physicists. Physicists didn't know anything about cancer, couldn't even begin to talk about it. And so they said, well, there are some physicists who know something about biology. They're astrobiologists. They know about the big picture about the evolution of life. Maybe by using these uh, numerate astrobiologists, they, maybe they can help us out. And so they wrote a couple of proposals, and that proposal got funded. And so I'm not sure, $10 million got distributed among a few universities. And then Paul Davies was the head of this center at, uh, Austra- at the... Uh, Adelaide? No, no, no. Adelaide was... 15 years ago. This was at when, when Paul was at Arizona, Arizona State University in Tempe, right. yeah. Arizona. Anyway, he got some money. He said, well, let's uh, organize a conference. And so he did. He invited me to the conference. And and then we sat around. It's kind of like hot tubbing. You, you get uh, six uh, experts <laughs> in cancer and six experts in a bunch of other things. And then you put them together and then they talk to each other and say, well, that can't be true. Oh, that must be true, et cetera. It's, it's like turning... Uh, 12 individual people into one big brain that has insights into different things. And so we found I and Paul learned an awful lot about cancer because we didn't know that much. We were astrobiologists. But the cancer people, we would tell them about the big picture evolution of life on this planet. Now, people who study cancer really do not have time to study evolution. They are trying to save the life of a guy who's 65 years old who just walked into his their office and he's got some kind of cancer and they're going to try to figure out what to do. They do not have time to think about where this cancer come from, what is, what is the point of view of the cancer, and uh, why is it there? And that's something that we astrobiologists, that's the only thing we know how to do. We don't know how to cure anybody if cancer walks into the office, but we do have I, some useful information about the large picture of evolution of life on this planet. And so what we did, Paul Davies and I, we wrote a paper about what we thought cancer was from an evolutionary point of view. And it's a point of view that, surprisingly, oncologists do not uh, uh, think about much. And that's why we thought it was an important contribution. Yeah, I've got to say, it is an unusual idea to have a cosmologist, uh, an astrobiologist, a physicist um, talking about the origin of a disease, a human disease or an animal disease. So, Well, here's why it makes a lot more sense. Uh, as an astrobiologist, you study the evolution of life for four billion years. Now, you may know that cancer is a, is a disease of multicellular organisms only. If you're unicellular, you do not get cancer. Only if you have a multicellular body do you get cancer. Why is that? Because uh, uh, cells that are meant to be a nose or a prostate gland or a lung, they say they forget that they're supposed to be a lung, and they just, unregul- with unre- not, without regulation, they propagate. And so they essentially forget that they're part of a multicellular organism. Now, that means that if we study the origin of multicellularity, that can tell us something about what is going wrong with the multicellular organism. So that's why there's a connection there. So, so it seems to be then that you're saying that cancer is a case of where the cells revert to type. They, they're bringing back old behavior. It, somehow that's re-triggered and they, that's right. and they go, and you call it Metazoa 1.0? You pick it up on the modern internet t- terminology? That was Paul's contribution. I've tried, I fought that, but he thought it was so clever that uh, he 
put it in there, and he was the lead author. So, but 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 basically, you are you are a collection of trillions of cells, mm. and cells. We know that life started out single cells. So about three or two and a half billion years ago, there were groups of cells that got together and said, you know what? If we get together, we can form a structure that will last better than any one, each one of us by ourselves. Mm. But you know what? In order to do that, we're gonna, I'm going to get to uh, propagate and you're going to get to be a somatic cell and you're going to die. You don't get to reproduce anymore. So essentially, two and a half billion years ago, there was a, a union formed among cells. They got together, but only a small fraction of the union members got to propagate. The others were there to protect those ones who did get to propagate. So, for example, right now you have gonads that can propagate, and then you have a brain and eyeballs and arms and muscles and all these things. Now, all that is going to die. They don't get to propagate. When you were a fetus, those cells got to reproduce about 35, 40 times, and then poof, they, their reproduction had to stop. And, and that stopping of the reproduction is something that's not easy to do because for the previous two billion years, those cells propagate, 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 self-reproduce, reproduce, reproduce, reproduce. And so in order to get a bunch of cells to join a union and say, you are no longer able to reproduce, you're going to be a somatic cell, you guys over here in the germline, you can reproduce as you have been doing. Well, you can imagine that every once in a while those guys in the union say, the hell with this, I'm going <laughs> to propagate. I'm going to forget that I'm supposed to be just a lung to breathe air to help these germ cells get passed on. I'm going to forget that I'm a liver cell, that I'm supposed to purify the blood to make this body go to, to then propagate the gene so every once in a while particularly when these regulation when the regulatory police get kind of weak or go away or when you get old then the cells start doing what they used to do what they really know how to do and they because they did it for two billion years before they joined the union and that is just reproduce 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 so yeah, yeah we're, we're sick of watching you guys reproduce we want to go but it's not just single cells right so you're saying that it's it's groups of cells in some sort of collaborative behavior well here's the, here's the thing so when you get a, a cancer cell and cancer cells reproduce, they proliferate, without any regulation. And the question is, now, we know that cancer goes through different stages. There's stage one, stage two, stage three, and it starts one place, and then often it metastasizes. So let's say that you start out with a, a colon cancer, and then uh, that colon cancer grows a little bit, and then it sends out the colonizers, which then go through the blood system or the lymph system, and then come to rest somewhere else, like in the liver, and then they start to colonize that and get big, so then you get liver cancer. So most of the death from cancer comes from metastasis. And so, but these are kind of very complicated. In order for a, a uh, colon cell to evolve, to first reproduce there, and then send out something through, go through some membranes, get into the circulatory system, and then go through another membrane, and then re you know rest in another organ, and then you in that environment get, let's say, uh, arteries to feed it blood, and then the thing grow and grow and grow. All of those requires lots and lots of uh, complicated, very complicated adaptations to do that. It's not just you know any old cell who can do that. So the question has been. Why is it that cancer cells know how to do all these incredibly uh, complicated things? And our answer is, well, that's because it used to be able to do that. 
before there was this really complicated, before there were 20 or before there were 200 cell types in the human body, we came from an organism which had only 10 cell types. Before there were 10 cell types, there were five cell types. In other words, cell types over evolutionary time have differentiated. And uh, so what we're saying is that the cancer cells that are doing these complicated things, they knew how to do those two billion years ago. And they, and uh, so, the police force that regulates them and says, oh, you have to stay a liver cell, you have to stay a lung cell, that's something relatively new as, as we've moved from 10 cell types to 100 cell types to 200 cell types. And so when you turn you know, one cell type into two, then you have to say, okay, I'm the, you, you have to do only this, you guys do only that. And so it takes some regulation, and when that regulation falls apart for some reason, either through mutations or through old age then, and lack of maintenance, then these cells just revert to what they knew how to do earlier. And what we're saying is the complex adaptations that cancer has were things that evolved billions of years ago, or at least hundreds of millions of years ago, rather than features that were result of evolution within the few decades that cancer has to progress in one single body. That's the difference. The rogue cell, or the we call that the internal Darwinism model, which is probably the consensus model about most people, among most people who study cancer, is that cancer cells start out and then they just mutate, 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 and then there's high selection pressure to do this, and then those guys survive, and then there's high selection pressure to do this. And so essentially, it's called mini evolution within three or four decades. And that doesn't make any sense to us because the things that are being selected for require a lot more than just three decades of mutation and evolution inside of a human body to do what they're able to do. We think that those abilities are already inside of genes that have always been there, well not always, but that evolved hundreds of millions of years ago over many millions of years. And so that's the distinction in how we explain what cancer, how cancer came to be what it is. Well, and that's, uh, it's fascinating because you've if you're cha changing the fundamentals of the way we think about something like cancer. We, uh, we might uh, take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk about how this program is re-triggered. Where does the program live while it's not active? And our guest today on Fuzzy Logic is uh, Dr. Associate Professor Charlie Lineweaver, astrobiologist, cosmologist. And we're talking cancer, the origin and future of the universe, and other such things. Here's something a bit more suitable to your taste, perhaps, like humans do. A bit more friendly than uh, our friend Jimi Hendrix on 2XX. Like humans do, like we do on Fuzzy Logic, the your science on a Sunday with my special guest today, Professor Doctor Her <laughs> Charlie Lineweaver, astrobiologist, cosmologist, and big thinker on lots of things that matter to us as humans, like that song says. And we've been talking about cancer, and I was going to ask you, Charlie, uh, that in the paper you talk about this ancient program inverted commas or ancient behavior being re-triggered now where is that behavior sitting or where, how does the cell remember what it used to do okay so 
factoid number one, every single cell in your body has the same DNA. Uh, so it doesn't matter if you sequence your DNA from your fingernail or from your toenail or from your liver cell. Um, and notice that each one of those cells is slightly different from the other, right? Even though you have the same DNA in your lip, your lip cell became a lip and your liver cell became a liver. So the differences have to do, the, the differences of one cell becoming one thing, one cell becoming the other, is in the way that those that DNA is expressed or regulated. So there are very complicated patterns of, okay, this protein you can turn on, we're gonna make 20 copies of you. Over here, no, we don't, don't need any of that one. Don't need any of that one. Let's, we're gonna, but we need three of these. And so you turn a button, the button gets turned because of, of a controlling gene. And then that other gene gets three copies of this. And over here, wait, we need 20 of these and then two of those. Each of them has a different recipe, but the basic menu is the same. So like, think of it, the DNA is the menu. And then there's a cook that says, I need three scrambled egg, two of these. And over here, I need, oh, this guy only wants a coffee and a cappuccino. You know? And so, and the coffee and the cappuccino turns into your liver. Over here, you turn into your foot. So basically, so there are this gene, there are lots and lots and lots of genes in your DNA, which gets used as a function of time and then gets turned off. When you're young, for example, when, you're, when you were a fetus, uh, there was skin in between your fingers. And then another gene came along and says, you know what, we're going to kill all those cells. It's apoptosis and it'll kill, 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 kill. And so that's why your fingers are now separate from each other. But the reason there was skin there was because the original pattern, you and I used to be fish. And so they, we had these digits that was, these were paddles, essentially. They weren't things for pick, grabbing branches, right? So, um, so this is how evolution works. And the pattern, however, for what we were is, uh, is still there in all of our DNA. It's just get overprinted, 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 overprinted as things, get, as things evolve. Another way to say that, a fancy way to say that is that ontogeny, which means the development of an individual, like you, recapitulates phylogeny. Phylogeny is the evolutionary history that you, that, that you and your ancestors went through to produce you. So, in other words, when you were conceived, you were an egg and you went through blastulation. And then you did this, and then you did this, and then you did this. But those are the same features that, for example, a fish goes through today. But then we and fish diverged about 400 million years ago, and then we went our separate ways. Of we, They turned into something we call fish, and we turned into human beings. But we still were the same. Let's see, let's see. Life on Earth is 4 billion years old, and we just talked about a divergence, 400 million. So that's one-tenth. So for 90% of the life on Earth, we were the same as fish. We were identical. But only in the last 400 million years did we part our ways. So that would predict that 90%, about 90% of the genes of, of fish would be the same as our genes. And then only 10% would be have diverged. And so chimpanzees were even closer. Your common ancestor with chimpanzees about five or six million years ago. And so we have much more uh, in common or the other, another 8% common with chimpanzees. So does this stuff reside, the stuff that, uh, the unused genetic code? Is it's that not unused, it's used at specific times during evolution. For example, you have a skin cell here. Now, if I get cut, that skin cell has to, say, has to recognize that it gets cut, and then it has to start dividing. Now, I just told you, wait a minute, if you're there, you're not supposed to divide. So it has to have a reprogram reprogrammable reproductive ability that when you get cut it has to recognize that then it has to start uh, reproducing the skin then heals itself and so those genes have to be available but only under circumstances when they get called upon
I was thinking in particular of so-called junk DNA, which is not junk, is it? Well, no, it's, it's, I don't think it's junk, but that's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, junk DNA is a little bit like if you're writing a computer code and you've written a code and then you've written another code and you made it more sophisticated, it gets more and more complicated, and then you say, oh, that's too complicated, and, and you comment out something and essentially put it in a tentative wastebasket, and then you forget about it, and then say, oh, wait a minute, that is useful, and then you uncomment it. So while it's uncommented out, it's called junk, but it's there and easier to retrieve, and so down the line when you feel that you might need it again, it can easily come online again. Ah, so but, it, but it's kind of baggage though, isn't it? Well, it's, it's, I would say it's a slight redundancy. It's kind of like saying, hey, I'm not sure that I'll need this, but maybe I will. I'll keep it. You know, imagine if you, when you take an air, when you take a trip on an airline, mm-hmm. and you say, you know what, when I arrive there, I'll night, I want to brush my teeth. So you put your toothbrush in your carry-on, but say, hey, you know what, these extra shoes I know I'll need because I'm going to a cold place, but I'll just keep them on my luggage because I won't be in the cold place until I get my baggage. So you divide your your stuff into what you need right now or what you might need more with more immediacy and what you might need later, but you're not quite sure. And so uh, that's what genes can be thought of that way as well. There are genes that are not called upon very often, but maybe they'll be used sometime in the future. They were useful in the past, but they're not immediate of use. And so they get offline for a while. And then uh, maybe, you know, when you get to a cold environment, some there'll be a mutation, pull them back online. Your skin will get really thick really quick, and you'll be able to survive when somebody who doesn't have that baggage won't be. Ah, so um, hopefully my toothbrush never, never comes back to do that to me. Um, now, if this is a reversion to an old type of behaviour and inappropriate in the you know, community of cells, which is our bodies, um, is, would it be the case that you could propagate these types of cancer cells in a Petri dish more easily than you can a normal uh, cell in your body? A non-cancerous cell. Uh, yeah, I suspect that's the case. Yeah. Can I just suggest um, this famous case of Henrietta Lacks, and many of our fuzzy listeners will know the case of Henrietta Lacks, where they took samples of, I think it was a very aggressive liver tumour that she had from uh, uh, Boston Hospital. And anyway, this thing went rogue and it infected cell laboratories right across the planet. Well, 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 that's an exact... It didn't infect them. It was used by laboratories all around the planet because it could reproduce so easily without... But they it inadvertently got onto samples, t- uh, tissue samples, and it got into labs where they didn't know they had Henrietta Lacks. They thought they had a pig culture, and it actually was Henrietta Lacks. This stuff was so aggressive, it grew like crazy in the lab. So, so my question is then, uh, is this likely to be uh, something you would expect from a cancerous cell? Maybe not that particular type of cell, but in general, would you, you'd expect cancer cells to be easier to propagate? Well, let's make, let's make a distinction first between viruses and cancer. Viruses are things that some people call alive. And when you get a cold, for example, that mm. virus, uh, you sneeze and you spread it somewhere in the air and the virus has learned to make you sneeze because it then gets Mm. to go into somebody else and then Mm -hmm. survive and pass on. Cancer is not like that. Cancer does not get passed on. And I'm a little bit, it's a little bit misleading to think of cancer as aggressively con- being contagious, for example. Cancer is not contagious. Cancer is your own cells. When you have cancer, they are your own cells. It's not some invader that's coming on. 
Now, I should say there's a couple of caveats there. For example, this Tasmanian mm. particular cancer, mm. that is something that is contagious. Mm-hmm. But in, for the most part, uh, cancer is not contagious. And that's because they're your own cells going wrong, or rather remembering what they used to be able to do when they had a free and easy life and didn't have to be part of a more regimented multicellular body. Uh, uh, yeah. So, so, okay. So... Now, how far back in the complexity of life forms, you said that single cellular organisms don't get cancer. Inverted commas, higher, um, let's say, not take go humans, let's say giraffe, uh, but mammals, monotremes, reptiles. Do, do reptiles, how far back in the evolutionary tree do we have to go before we don't see cancer? Well, this is a really difficult question, and I've spent quite a few hours trying to find that out. And... Uh, so, for example, what, from what I've said earlier, that uh, you know, multicellular creatures have different number of cell types, and then when things get old, for example, they can, uh, they can forget what they're supposed to do. That, in using those general words, you would think that that would be a fungus would have that problem, or a, a, an animal of any kind, or a plant. And so cancer, according to this view, should be something that's common to these other uh, multicellular creatures as well. And yet, if you study cancer, you'll find out, first of all, that something like 99% of the research on cancer has to do with human cancer and with playing with mice to give them different types of cancer. And uh, mice are are very closely related to us. I think our common ancestor with mice is about 60 million years ago or so, maybe 60, 65. And uh, so they're essentially, mice and us are identical from that, from from a... big picture point of view. And so you're asking, now plants, do they get cancer? Well, plants and us have a common ancestor about 1.5 billion years ago. And it's not obvious that the common ancestor of us and plants was multicellular. And that makes it problematic. But, you know, there are some cancers of uh, plants, but they haven't been studied very much because nobody cares about them. They're just, uh, you know, if you get some peach, some peach gets a, a peach tree gets a cancer. It was a, okay, so what if it gets old and dies? You know, one of the reasons why we're so uh, we know so much about cancer is because we're concerned with wanting to live longer. But you know, there's a natural lifespan to a peach tree, and when it gets to be, I'm not sure, I don't know, 200 years, and then it starts to fall apart in ways that we could say is cancer. Well, people just don't care, and they plant a new one. And if we weren't so invested in living longer, we would probably wouldn't know that much about cancer either, because. Um, well, we used to die earlier of other things. Cancer is predominantly a disease of old age, and that's essentially, well, you've already had your children, you've passed on your genes, and now we don't care about your somatic cells anymore, so we're not gonna do that much to maintain the, the, the regulation that we had to do to keep you functioning correctly. Okay, so now there are many different kinds of cancer. Usually we think of them as being defined by the type, the organ in which they occur, but even within an organ there are many types. So I believe there is at least four types of breast cancer, for example. Does your model have anything to say about why a different type of cancer might occur? Well, if there were an infinite number uh, or a very, very, very large number of breast cancers, that would be evidence against our model. Because our model says that the ability of a cancer cell to do what it does was there already. And if it's there already, it's, it doesn't change. If you get cancer, for example, and then you have a, of, I don't know, lung cancer, and then you have a great, 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 great grandchild, 10 or 20 generations down, according to our model, those cancers will be identical 
Why? Because they will be produced by something that is in your history and your descendants' history from millions and millions of years ago. So, and so what our prediction is that there are a very limited number of cancers and that it doesn't evolve because it evolved a long time ago and it's just fixed there. The rogue model, however, says that, okay, you know, this could mutate in this way, could mutate in that way, could mutate in this way, could mutate in that way. And every, new, every cancer should be some type of new cancer. There shouldn't be any regular, any strong pattern to the types of successful mutations inside the, the new cells. So that would be one way to distinguish these two models. So what sort of reaction have you had from uh, regular oncologists and cancer researchers? Well, some people are skeptical and say, hey, astrobiologists doing cancer, that can't, that's impossible. And other people say, wow, this is a nice new idea and this should be developed more. And other people say, oh, no, they're wrong. So those are the three. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what, what effect might it have on the way we treat cancer? Well, what it does, first of all, it says that as we... For example, let's talk about breast cancer. There are stages in breast cancer. And, as, and increasingly, we're able to look at the types of DNA differences, the mutations that occur as a function of the stage of breast cancer. And our prediction is that there are a large number, but a finite number of ways in which this cancer can progress. In other words, there will be a pattern. Now, people will say, well, wait a minute, when they do this, they're seeing all kinds of things. And we're saying, well, they're seeing different things, but not all kinds of things. There's a cert there will be increasingly patterns emerging from these microarray analyses of cancer as a function of stage. And those will be repeatable again and again and again. Now, that means that the, the arsenal of weaponry of cancer cells is limited. They have a certain number of guns. They have 10 pistols, five cannons, and two atomic bombs. But, and so that's it. Because, why? Because that happened a billion years ago. Those are the things that it still has. If you have the, the standard model says, wait a minute, it could evolve a new type of atomic weapon, or it could evolve, no, 10 pistols, maybe have 27, and then it could change the... And according to our model, cancer does not evolve. Uh, the standard model is cancer evolves inside of the human body. And that's what we need to be able to test. And uh, so that's what's going on. Well, I would like to reassure listeners we don't have any uh, nuclear arsenal or anything, any weapons of any kind other than our wits here in the studios of Fuzzy Logic. And uh, we, that's bringing us to the end of our show for today. And uh, uh, coming up, we've got plenty of lots of exciting things here for you from the Fuzzy Logic Labs. Uh, next week, uh, we're going to bring you some highlights from the science in 2011. And the week after, the 4th of December, put this in your diaries. Team Fuzzy will be out at Mount Stromlo Observatory for the 100th anniversary. We'll be doing a live broadcast there. You can come out and see the living, breathing specimens known as Homo fuzziensis. That's us. And uh, we've got some Ask Fuzzies coming up too. The one tomorrow is uh, one I wrote, which is, uh, why is it that sometimes you see lightning, but you don't hear it? And I had a bit of fun with that one because I learned about a thing called Schumann resonance. And uh, yeah, and so read all the details tomorrow in the Canberra Times. And some other ones we've got on the cards. Someone, um, Tony, sent me a, a question to the fuzzy ask fuzzy email address and that is um if you have a hearing impairment and you lose that 
uh, range of frequencies or that that bit of hearing and you don't exercise it by wearing a hearing aid or something do you lose permanently your ability to hear that sound so i'll get a neuroscientist i think for that one i'll get a real expert there why does cement not set in the back of the truck <laughs> i reckon uh, charlie could probably answer a fair few of these off the cuff <laughs> Uh, I won't ask you to do that now, Charlie. And uh, one one from you, Charlie, which I'm looking forward to when you get the time, because I know you're a busy gent, and that is, uh, does the moon rotate? Do you want to give us a quick ad-lib on that one? Oh, sure. Uh, when you look at the moon, you're seeing the same side of the moon. You're not seeing, able to see the back side of the moon. So in that sense, the moon does not rotate with respect to you. On the other hand, if you think about it, uh, if the moon is always showing the same side of the Earth, that means every time that the moon goes around, it has to rotate once. And so the, essentially the day on the moon is the same as a year on the moon. It rotates uh, and keeps the same face towards the Earth. So that's one sense in which it rotates. But it also, uh, it nutates and librates. It goes like, it, oh, I can't, <laughs> I'm using a visual demonstration on radio. That doesn't, it kind of sways back and forth. Yeah. And that's because its orbit is not perfectly uh, Circular, circular, right? circular, yeah. And so sometimes it, and so if you have a rotation that's kind of even, but a orbit that takes you closer to the Earth and then further away, and you stay f longer further away, then your rotation sometimes gets uh, goes ahead, and then sometimes di uh, gets behind the normal way you, which of which you would like to have always facing. It's harder to keep the same face to the Earth when you have a uniform rotation and you're not in a circular orbit. So essentially you're going, you're swaying back and forth like a dancer on the on a dance floor, and that's what the moon is doing. Oh, I'm very sorry you can't see the, uh, the, the, the vision with uh, that, that, that uh, demonstration that Charlie has been giving us. And in fact, I'll, uh, I've got uh, a link that I'll put up on the uh, Fuzzy Facebook page. Join us, make a friend on Fuzzy, uh, the Fuzzy Facebook uh, because uh, on this video, it's not, or this series of pictures goes from a site, the astronomy picture of the day, and you can see the wobbling of the moon, inverted commas, that uh, Charlie is talking about. It's fascinating because it just got this little side-to-side -side dance and, uh, and twisting motion on it. It goes like this. <laughs> oh, we, can put, we should put some music on while, while, while we dance the slow waltz to that <laughs> very graceful theme there. And... Uh, Okay, Charlie, it's been a great highlight of uh, my time on Fuzzy Logic to have you as guest and now for the third time. And thank you very much for coming back on. It's been a real privilege. Oh, thank you, Mr. Fuzzy. <laughs> and uh, come back next week. There'll be more from uh, Fuzzy Logic. You've been listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show with our special guest. Oh, my name is Rod, by the way. Uh, Dr. Charlie Lineweaver, coordinator, ANU Planetary Science Institute. Research School of Astronomy, Astrophysics and Research School of Earth Sciences. Catch you at Mount Stromlo for the Open Day in a couple of weeks' time. See you later.